You're listening to Talking Rugby with me, Matt Burke. Hello and welcome to the final episode of Talking Rugby for 2019. Now, being the final episode, I thought I'd roll out the big guns. Someone who's been a part of this amazing sport for over 50 years. He's been at every World Cup since its beginning in 1987 and has been both a player and a referee. You know him as the voice of rugby. We know him as GB. My special guest today is none other than Gordon Bray. Gordy, welcome along. Good to be with you, Berkey, just like the commentary box. It's just like, it is like yeah. the commentary box. Um, you're on the left-hand side. Now, you are the voice of rugby. Love it. What a, what a great tag. Now, is there any truth uh, that nickname was self-appointed? Did you give yourself that number? Um, no, I didn't. Um, I enjoy it, though. Uh, there are a few rivals uh, for the tag, a few <laughs> trying to pull it down. But, Never. Um, I think, uh, uh, what, 50 years now uh, in broadcasting and been calling test matches since 1976. So probably have a fair claim to the title. Fair claim to the title. Yeah. There's a, the, the PR It machine. means nothing though, Berkey. As you know, you're as good as your last bloody broadcast. You, you, you There's are. a lot of people out there trying to pull you down. Talk to me about, your, okay, then your last broadcast. How much did you enjoy that last game, Australia, pardon me, New Zealand, taking on England? Uh, absolutely fantastic. Uh, I think that is the greatest defensive performance I've seen by any team uh, in, in all my calling of, of Test Rugby. The England defence was crackerjack. Uh, their back row, Underhill and Curry and Atoje and all the forwards. I mean, the, the front rowers, the work rate is just incredible. Yeah, it was good, wasn't and, it? and then, you know, to, to think that we're going to have those forwards taking on the might of South Africa in the final, uh, it's going to be brutal and ferocious. We'll get on to that in a second. Uh, 1969, you first started in your commentary. How, how did you get into it? I was um, working for Bob Oatley, um, uh, Hamilton Island owner and, uh, yeah. and also uh, Wild Oats Whites. And uh, he actually was importing coffee beans from Papua New Guinea. So he employed me as a, um, a trainee straight out of school. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, at school, I wasted my time. I played <laughs> rugby and it was, played cricket. And that was all that was important. But anyway, he saw something and he was going to send me up to PNG. But after 12 months... I saw an ad in the Sydney Morning Herald for a specialist trainee with ABC Sport. Okay. I thought, wow, you know, I think the salary was about $29 a week, but it was a two-year cadetship. And the, you had to have an acceptable speaking voice. Um, I think the wording was a, a pleasant appearance, a good general <laughs> knowledge of sport, and the ability to do broadcasts. Yeah. So what the heck? I applied for it. And uh, to my shock, um, I got it. Um, there are... I suppose there, there was, I did get a helping hand, I've got to say. Um, Sydney Legacy, I lost my father when I was nine years old. So Legacy looked after our family. And the a mentor for our family was a gentleman by the name of Sir Ivan Doherty. Mm -hmm. um, he was the president of Legacy. He was a World War II hero. And he was like a father uh, to me and my brothers and sisters. And I went to see him and said, look, I'm going to apply for this job with the ABC. Um, what do you think? And he said, well... I'll speak to um, Talbot Duck Manton, uh, Sir Talbot Duck Manton. He's the general manager of the ABC and, um, and another former president of Legacy. So that's how I got a helping hand to get to the interview stage. Um, so I, I got that. I don't think I would have got an interview. But I, really? I got the, yeah, I don't think so, because I really didn't have the qualifications. And it was about selling yourself. And uh, once I got to that first stage, Drew Morford took me for my first interview. And I got a couple of the general knowledge questions wrong. And uh, he said, mate, I think you seem a pretty good bloke, so we'll spool the tape back 
these are the answers to the ones you got wrong because the two guys before you got 100%. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a true story. So he's no longer with us, Drew Morford, yeah. but a wonderful commentator. And uh, he was a rugby man from Sydney but became a, a great Aussie rules commentator. Fantastic. Yeah, so that's how it all started. Now, were, 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 were they strict broadcasting rules as well back, like back in the day? I oh, know they are now. It's, we're in 2019 and perhaps it's a little bit looser and, and you know, we always have the conversation about sort of, you know, understanding what the role is and what you're trying to give to the people at home. Was it just ridiculously strict back in the day? It was, you know, the ABC, uh, they came down on you very hard. They wouldn't let me near a, a microphone on air for at least 12 months. So I used to take a tape recorder out to the, the old Sydney sports ground and call uh, the Roosters in, in the rugby league match uh, played on the Sunday. I'd yeah. take the recorder in my own time, then bring it back to the likes of John O'Reilly and Norman May and ask them to listen to it and give me a critique. Um, but I did that for 12 months before they allowed me to even go on air. Um, we also at the ABC in those days had what you call a pronunciation clerk. Yeah. So any, the ABC came down on you very hard for mispronouncing any name or any country or, or any word. So we actually had to ring up the pronunciation clerk and check with her yeah. to make sure you got it right. So they were absolutely fastidious in that regard and they were very strict. Uh, although we did get away with murder, I've got to say. Well, that's <laughs> down uh, at the pub. <laughs> that's uh, that's that's Google these days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, that's right. I, yeah, I, I do it as well with the you know the, the Russian tennis players. Now, yeah, you've to you got the, to yeah the, the pronunciation correct, or as some people call it pronunciation, which mm. you've got to try and um, help them out at the same time. Um, got to ask you the, the information. Where do you get your information from? Because you know you we're in a we're in an era now where information is at the tip of your fingers, literally at the tip of your fingers. How did you get your information you know, when you were broadcasting? Well, my inspiration um, was the late Bill McLaren, um, the great BBC broadcaster. And mm. every time I went on a Wallaby tour with the Wallabies uh, over to the UK, I'd make a point of catching up with Bill McLaren in the Scottish borders. And he would spend five or six days before a test match uh, in his little study. Uh, it was like a little sunroom. And he had a massive sheets in front of him. with, And on each player, he had seven or eight different points, but mm. all in tiny coloured inks mm. and uh, that was his preparation. He, he said to me, look, Gordon, I'll only use 5% of this information, but at least I know if something happens, mm. I, I can fall back on, on a particular point. But the whole secret with that sort of building that um, colour biography of, of the players is that um, it's, it's like doing your um, preparation for an exam, your yeah. homework. So in the exam, you've got to produce uh, and ideally, um, you use that information spontaneously. Where it's hard is when you're doing a, like a, an international broadcast like we are at the World Cup, where we have no control, no contact with the director. Yeah. So I, I really, to get a nice little line about a player, about his background, if he's seeing a witch doctor, which one of the English players is, by <laughs> the way, um, you really need a close-up of that player, but we mm. don't get those close-ups. Mm. We have no coordination. So... To get that information across, you're not actually talking to the pictures, if you know what I yes, mean. Yeah. So that's a bit frustrating. Whereas if it was your own director, um, you know, with Channel 10 back in Australia, we have that rapport where he can throw up, Gordon, I'm going to give you and Berkey a shot of this particular player. Then you can deliver a line about them. So it's, it's the inspiration from Bill McLaren. I've always kept clippings from newspapers uh, in Australia and overseas. I've got scrapbooks going back to 1978. Wow. It, my wife you know, says you know, this, she's had to actually build a whole mobile filing system at our place up on the central coast. And I love going back over those old scrapbooks. So old programs, yeah. and now you've got the internet. Um, 
just talking to players, talking to family members, going to training sessions, speaking to the medical staff. Mm. That's what it's all about. It's, it's about, I've always believed you've got to totally immerse yourself. So I'm, as you know, I'm probably pretty antisocial before a test match. Never. <laughs> uh, I'm very hard to get out on the, on, you know, on the Terps. Um, it's just a hard <laughs> and fast rule. And uh, yeah, I just tend to lock myself away. And, and, and I love doing that. I love that preparation. Talk about your preparation before the game. Now, there's a story uh, back in the day with you and Chris Handy. Uh, you used to have a little bit of rum and coke beforehand, was that right? Just to warm up the tonsils? Yeah, I know. Uh, well, it was the commentary team. Uh, we, we'd have a little rum and coke, particularly at Ballymore. And the stewards there were very good, Stock very accommodating, standard. yeah. And uh, I, it was John Eels's first test match, I think, against the Welsh. Mm -hmm. And um, we'd forgotten to have our little rum and coke uh, before the game. And Buddha was very agitated. The match got underway. And uh, anyway, he summoned the steward who came out with a whole jug of rum and coke and no glasses. And he gave the jug to Buddha while we're commentating on air. And Buddha just with both hands up to his mouth and, and had a good swig. And then the steward came to me and I said, I said, no, no, no. But then tripped over the cord and tipped the rest of the contents of the jug down the back of the no. neck. While uh, I think Jason Little was scoring a try. Is that right? <laughs> I don't think you'd actually started your test career no, at that no. point. But um, I lost the two expert commentators i think it was buddha and maybe gary pierce they just fell over backwards laughing and i had to keep going <laughs> scored the try yeah but um they didn't allow me on the flight that night um i think it might have been the old a and a they said you've been drinking sir you know you're sorry we won't oh, let you right? because i had just reeked of alcohol of rum and coke yeah yeah they realize you're at ballymore exactly yes. right yeah. uh now are you superstitious for you know, calling games or, or you know, players have, and, and I did, I always had to pull my socks up to a certain height and my right foot went into the boot first, my second one, I, I read the laces three or four times. Have you got anything that uh, that's superstitious about your preparation in calling games? I think I'm pretty boring in that regard. Um, when I was, uh, you know, when I was playing um, back at school at Homebush High, um, our, our coach, uh, the late Jack Mason, um, he called in Brian Palmer, who was a legendary Waratah, and uh, he told us that the backs had to be pristine, a bit like yourself, Berkey, not a hair out of place, <laughs> uh, starched collar yeah. uh, on, your, on your jumper, nice white shorts, make sure you starch, white your laces, and I want to be able to see the mirror image in your boots. So all of that stuff, I was always absolutely spot on in, in terms of the preparation for the game, mm. um, as you were, um, mm. so that that would be the only superstition. In in life, I think it, it's all about fate and what you create yourself. So yeah, I don't how, I don't believe in that stuff. How was your rugby career? My rugby career was a, a modest one. I, I um, was at Homebush Boys High. I really get annoyed. I mean, you see a lot of stuff on social media saying that uh, that Gordon Bray, that Toffee Blake from private school background. <laughs> I went to um, the Western Suburbs Finishing Academy, Homebush High. Homebush High. Uh, you know, we were a battling family. We we're a battling suburb. We had a great rugby team. So I had a, three years in the first 15, played for combined high schools. Yep. And um, my, my, I must tell you, my, my secret greatest honour is being on the same honour board at Homebush High as Arthur Summons. Yeah, right. And, and that honour goes to the captain of the first 15. So I think it was uh, 17, 15 years after Arthur Summons, my name appears. Uh, and that, I think, is my, my greatest honour. Yeah, yeah, legend of. Yeah. Uh, was rugby always your passion, or did you have other sports when you were growing up? Look, I loved, I loved rugby league. Um, I, I was one of those kids who played in the backyard and, and with the local neighbours down at the park. Mm. Um, I followed Aussie rules. I followed rugby league. Um, I followed rugby union. I followed soccer. 
Um, I I had all my favourite teams, and even in those days, I used to get the newspapers and I'd cut out clippings of all the different sports. So I had um, these scrapbooks, um, and and that was something that was just uh, a passion, I suppose. Mm. I I just was a fanatical kid. Every afternoon, we were out playing cricket or rugby down at the local park. But I must say. Um, I used to follow the West's Magpies, you know, when they used to go to Pratton Park, mm. and and even the Western Suburbs first grade cricket team, they had um, Alan Davidson and Bobby Simpson and probably six players from the New South Wales Shield team. You could go and go in the dressing room with those guys on a Saturday afternoon. Back so in we'd the day. be yeah, we'd be yeah. out on the perimeter playing cricket, and then when they those guys came into battle bowl, we'd all all stop. So that was that was my whole focus in life. It was all sport. Now you've you've done your sailing commentary, you've done com games, you've done it's so much of it. But you started out by calling AFL, is that right? Uh, yeah. Well, the ABC sent me down to Hobart, and th- th- they said that with the specialist trainees, if you wanted to be able to call rugby league or rugby union, you had to learn to call Aussie rules. And so my first posting was to Hobart, and I was down there for four years. Um, that's where I got into the sailing side of things, where they sent me down on the West Coast race from Melbourne to Hobart, and mm. then I started doing going down on the radio relay vessel for the Sydney Hobart. But I called Aussie Rules for three years, and um, their reasoning was that you, if you're going to be a good caller, you, you're calling, what, 36 players mm. instead of 30 or 26. Um, it's a faster game, and uh, you know, you've got to take yourself out of your comfort zone and, and learn the rules mm. and, and get to meet all the players, and that's exactly what I did. Although I must say, the biggest downer when I did my first Aussie Rules broadcast in Hobart, the, the supervisor for ABC Sport, he said, I'd now like to welcome to the, to the microphone our rugby commentator from Sydney. Love it. So credibility went straight down the gurgler. Yes, that's right. Uh, thank you very much, Don. He's no longer with us, but uh, yeah. Now, I really enjoyed that side of it. And that's, we called a different sport every week. And, mm. and that ABC training, I think, stood me in good stead for the Olympics when I worked with 2GB with uh, Ray Hadley and, uh, and the boys um, and probably called 12 different sports uh, at the London Olympics, and uh, and I loved it all because I covered all of that stuff with the ABC. You'd sort of say it's you you got to become well rounded, don't you? That, that's mm. that's the one. It's like uh, I I love how kids play all sports these days, I mean, and, and it's getting sort of more direct now. When you know at the early age they're sort of choosing cricket, you know, rugby league, rugby union, whatever. And it's like no, like do all sports because yeah. you can get more rounded on things. Well, I know with your uh, how how much attention you pay to your family, to your to your mm. girls and we were the same. My wife was a phys ed teacher and um, her attitude was when the kids were maybe 5 or 6, she wanted to get them both into gymnastics. Yep. So they went into gymnastics for 4 years and that gave them a fantastic uh, base with their discipline and their balance and their dexterity and all yep. that stuff. And th- they then went into all their different sports and played, you know, a heap of sports. And, and part of the fun as parents is going along to follow them. Mm. And sometimes, like you, you get roped into the coaching you're side of things. Coaching, exactly but right. that's all part of the uh, equation, isn't it? Meeting yeah. the other family, the, the other parents, and, and you, you build great relationships that way. But yeah, that's, that's so important. I think the more variety for kids, the more sports they can tackle, the better. Yeah, and at the same stage, you try not to be too biased when you're standing on the sideline. Or refereeing, which brings me to my next point. You've you've got your ticket in refereeing, and I often ask you on on air, you know, why? Yeah. And and rugby perhaps is this game where sometimes we don't even know. And, we've been, and like yourself, you've been here for so long. I've I've played at the, the highest level. 
and you still scratch your head sometimes, but you've got your ticket, um, and I often come to you and ask why. Well, can I say, Berkey, um, your interpretation of the laws in that game last week between New Zealand and England was absolutely fantastic. I think I said to you afterwards, that was a brilliant commentary. You read all of the interpretations correctly, mm. and uh, it's all, look, I think it comes down to common sense. I did, um, I've got 199 games up for New South Wales rugby. Is that right? I think I'm too old to do 200, (laughs) but I've I've said to them, I would like to do, but you're going to have to hand pick the game. It's probably going to have to be the under eight somewhere or, you know, a subbies in in fifth grade. But um, it's very important, I think. And I must tell you a little story um, about your old school. Uh, Tony Boyd, brother Boyd, um, in the centenary year of St. Joseph's College, rang me up and said, Gordy, we've got the possibles playing the probables. Mm. This is the last game before we announce the first 15 for the opening game of the GPS. It's going to be ugly, and I, I need someone like yourself to, to control the boys. You know, you're going to have to be very strong with them. They're often the toughest games. And my nephew was playing. My nephew was actually playing for the probables, and he was a very strong boy. He did a lot of weights. And uh, anyway, in the very first scrum... He headbutted his opposite number right under the referee's nose and, and broke the guy's nose. What do I do? I had to send him off. I sent off my own nephew in the possibles and the probables, and he didn't get to play. He got suspended for four weeks, didn't get to play for the first 15. In the centenary of St. Joseph's Rugby, two guys were carried off on stretches in that game. Um, it was, I've never seen people put their bodies on the line, but you've experienced that. Um, it's, it's GPS rugby. Um, Oh, uh, schoolboy rugby, yeah. yeah. I remember Dad used to say he got more nervous at school than he did sort of you know when you're playing for Australia because of, you know, that just that pressure. Yeah. Are you getting Christmas cards from your nephew these days or not? We're still talking. Um, <laughs> my my brother, um, who is is the father, um, obviously uh, he he chuckles about it, but he said no, you only had one decision to make, and uh, it was just a rush of blood. And I think he was trying to impress me. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so it was rather unfortunate, but. Joey's won, of course, in the centenary year, and mm. uh, yeah, I just love that. I love that level of schoolboy football. I think it's one of the big problems, though, for Australian rugby, mm-hmm. in that I come from combined high schools background, state high schools, yep. and we've lost that nursery. I believe all of our um, all of our schoolboy and representative teams now are private school kids, and I think it's because back in my day, it, the teachers were honorary; they gave up their own time, yes. but now. Um, they're not prepared to give up their own time to coach rugby after hours. Yeah. And that's a big problem. So we need the development officers to get out there into the into the state high schools, yeah. uh, right around the country. And uh, money's a problem in that regard, but um, we're just missing so much talent slipping through the ranks, not only in the country areas, but you, you look out the west of Sydney and, and out the outer regions of, of Queensland and so forth. The state high schools are being neglected, unfortunately. I think when you say development officers, I think it's literally officer these days. There's yeah. not many, uh, yeah. sadly, going around. I was in that category years ago at uh, mm. back at Eastwood Rugby Club. Mm. Um, when you when you commentate, or oh, pardon me, when you referee, did you commentate on the run? Were you? Were I you did. Yeah, skillful enough to do that. A lot of a lot of a lot of people come up to me now and say, "Oh, you ref- do you remember that game you refereed?" Uh, and so, yes, off. of course I do. Yes, I remember vividly. I have no idea. Yes. You know, can't even remember the game. But I used to commentate a bit during the game, and so the players like that. But um, as a former uh, you know, scrum half myself, my attitude to refereeing was let the players enjoy themselves. Whether it's the fifteen C's mm-hmm. um, or you know a grade game, um, just. 
left the players, this is their weekend. This mm. is their time to, to, to play rugby and enjoy it with their mates. So mm. that was always my attitude. I probably ab adopt the attitude of, of Nigel Owens, who tends to be a bit laissez-faire with his refereeing. I think he's a great referee. Talk to the players. Talk them out of the bloody penalties. Yes. Don't blow your whistle if someone comes offside. Tell him to get back and yeah. stay there. And yeah. I think Nigel Owens does that very well. I, you know, pedantic refereeing drives me mad. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's all about... Uh, talking the players out of committing offences and, and getting some continuity for the players and the spectators. Well, that's the half-time whistle already. One incredible trip down memory lane with a man who has he's seen it all, Gordon Braden. Now, stay with us. There's plenty more to come from my co-commentator right after this. What do Tom Jones, Borat and Eddie Munster all have in common? You can hear them all on the Starstruck with Angela Bishop podcast. I'll give you all the behind-the-scenes goss on what went on with some of my most fascinating interviews over the years. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Talking Rugby. We are chatting with the voice of rugby, Gordon Bray. 1987, Rugby World Cup starts up. Uh, quite an incredible occasion. Uh, over in New Zealand, you've been commentating every World Cup, which is quite incredible. What's, what's your biggest moment through that period of time? What, what, what can you say is a standout moment? Well, 1987, I remember um, Alan Jones was the coach and uh, the players weren't allowed to go to work in the morning because he had just started his morning radio show on 2UE. So training didn't start till after lunch. <laughs> so it was because of him. They weren't allowed to play golf. Uh, they were, Nick Far Jones used to sneak into work, I know that for a fact. Um, and they used to train out at Trinity Grammar. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so they, they were the early halcyon days. And I think of Sir Nicholas Shahidi, um, the great Sir Nicholas Shahidi, yeah, who was one of the instigators mm. um, of the Rugby World Cup. And uh, I think of that first World Cup, I think of John Kerwin and that try, that single-handed try where he beat 13 Italians yeah. at Eden Park. And then um, the referee at Concord Oval in the semi-final missed a little knock-on by the French. Mm. And that led to the try by Blanco that sunk Australia. Um, had the referee spotted the knock-on or the officials, uh, we would have been playing New Zealand in the final. It mm. could have easily been a different result. But I think I go through to 91 um, and that dramatic game at Lansdowne Road in the quarter-final when Gordon Hamilton scored mm. six minutes from full-time and, um, and Chris Handy and Gary Pearce and myself were in the, in the box. The Irish crowd ran onto the field there were hundreds of people on the field hugging. They thought they'd just won the World Cup. And we thought, oh, my God, we're, we're going home tomorrow. Mm. It was that feeling. You've had that feeling in um, in 95. Um, so, yeah, that, that was incredible. And then for Australia to come back, and, and Michael Liner was the acting captain and said, boys, we're going to get up the other end. We're going to score a try to win the game. And then when we did score the try, Liner scored the try, you could have heard a pin drop mm. at Lansdowne Road. The only noise you could hear were the three ABC commentators screaming their heads off. <laughs> and I sat next to Michael Liner, who was your old captain, mm. uh, yesterday, or, or on the Sunday, for the second semi-final between South Africa and Wales. And uh, he was in fine form. Uh, he even shouted a beer, by the way. Oh, that, that's, yeah. that's quite good. <laughs> now, I know this, I know this story, and you mentioned that was... And we always talk about letting the game breathe about yeah. the silence of the game now you let the you let it run for an enormous amount of time after they scored that try is that correct yeah well um when they scored i put my hand up to um to buddha and piercy and and because the crowd just went berserk um when hamilton scored and it would have been criminal to say anything so mm. we didn't say utter a word for 31 seconds wow. but we did beat that 
when I was commentating with Joel Stransky in the Brighton Miracle, yes. when Japan beat South Africa, when Khan Hesketh scored, I put my hand up to Joel, which was hard. Oh, mind you, he was in mourning being a South African. <laughs> and we didn't say anything for 45 seconds. Wow. <clears throat> and you didn't need to say anything. Yeah. I mean, I remember talking to the great Bruce McAvaney, um, who's another guy I really look up to as a wonderful commentator. I think when McIvy Diva won its third Melbourne Cup, yeah, there was, coming back to scale, I think there was no commentary for nearly three minutes. Mm. And it was all the crowd, it was the emotion, and it would have been wrong to say anything. And that was just the best bit of non-commentary I've ever heard. Mm. And it's just amazing how that silence can add so much drama and have so much impact. And, and I think we've discovered that. We sort of work with the sounds. We hear the referee talking to the players and the viewers at home want to hear that. They yeah. want to know what's going on. The great story of that 1991 uh, when Hamilton scored the try and Australia were potentially out. Eelsie was most worried about his laundry that he put in on that Saturday of the, of the game day because you usually have to leave the following day and he wouldn't have got his laundry yeah, back. So I that heard was that. the thing he was more worried about than anything else. Actually, the other interesting one there, by the way, um, is the first person out on the field to hug Gordon Hamilton was his next door neighbour. Oh, is that right? Yeah, because we did a story in 96 um, when we went over there on your unbeaten tour. Yes. And we did a story on Gordon Hamilton and, and we met his next door neighbour and, and then we got the old pictures out and there he was hugging his next door neighbour, Gordon Hamilton. Wasn't it a great game? Oh, it was a great game. Uh, do you remember, and I love it because it, the, the com, we call it the commentator's curse, you know, as in having shots for goal. And Matthew uh, Burke, that's a shocker. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it's, it's surprising how it works out because, you know, in, in your head when you're a kicker, you just go through your motions yeah. and you go through your, your routines. Um, and it's got nothing to do with the commentator or the curse, but somehow there's a correlation between saying something that you believe is going to be right in the field uh, and then... It goes completely the opposite yeah. way in games. Um, how do you how do you work those big moments in games as well? I, I know you do. You, do you have a, a preset line that that's going to be sort of you know when a moment happens, like Brighton, for example? Do you have a a, 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 a key line or a phrase that you're going to? I say? think um, I think ideally it's got to be spontaneous. I remember uh, when Wilkinson kicked his goal. It was uh, England's stairway to rugby heaven. Mm. Um, I think when uh, Hesketh scored, um, it was, uh, our eyes have seen the glory, it's a rugby miracle. You sort of do have those lines at the back of your mind, because I think it's important to have um, something there that will have an impact right at that moment. But I don't think you can over-prepare them. Mm. Um, they've got to be spontaneous. Sometimes they happen for you, and sometimes they don't. And that's yeah. the frustration. And that's why I think you know, you've just got to be you know, clear in your mind and really on top of your game. And sometimes, as you know, you can start a commentary and you stumble over a few words or get a name wrong and, mm. and you think, bugger, bugger, bugger. It's like running a 100-metre race and you've you know, stood in the, in the, in the at blocks. the starting stalls. Yeah. Yeah, so, and then trying to recover. So, but you've got to put that behind you as you do as a player. Mm. Um, you know, it's all history. So in that sense, yes, um, you do try to have little lines, appropriate lines. And I'll sometimes rehearse them while I'm going to sleep. Just a little line I'd like to say about a particular player. Yeah. Um, just to make people chuckle more than anything else. Yeah. Because I think we're in the entertainment business. 
Similar, um, yeah. similar along the lines of uh, when Matt Burke lined up his third shot at goal in the 99 World Cup and his fiancée was staying at home. I wasn't even engaged at the time. <laughs> Talk about putting the pressure on me. Oh, my god. So what was, the, what was the fallout from that? Uh, no, we, we end up getting you, married. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's okay. You, you're, you're it's on been a, a long and happy lasting <laughs> that's relationship. That's exactly right. Yeah. You're on the right ticket. Yeah. Uh, who's the best player you've seen? You've, you've seen so many games of football and commentated. Who's the best player? Best fullback, Matthew Burke. Uh, no doubt about that. I'll give you the 50 later. Yeah. Um, look, honestly, as a boy, I modelled myself. My hero was Ken Catchpole, mm-hmm. uh, scrum half from Ramwick. Um, he captained Australia at 21 years of age. I think he was even the coach and captain in South Africa in 1961. Uh, and then when they went back two years later, Australia actually was leading the Springboks 2-1 in a four-test series and were robbed in the last test. There was a South African referee. I think the penalty count was 18 to three. And and so it was a drawn series, but Catchpole was the star of that series. I used to go down to Kujiaval and and watch him. I used to watch him on television, on the ABC, with Trevor Allen as the expert and Cyril Towers, who always used to complain about the over-inflated balls. (laughs) He said, how many times, at the start of every telecast, he'd say to Norman May, these balls are overinflated, Norman. <laughs> you know, how many times do I have to tell them? And that was always his stock opening line. But, but Catchpole and, and, and Ramwick, they had a, an international back line, yeah. uh, all Wallabies and probably two or three Wallaby forwards. And, and they were the, the pace setter. And um, Catchpole, just his cover defending, his, his, uh, um, his vision on the, on the field, his, his ability, his speed off the mark, and mm. he had a beautiful, beautiful pass off the ground, yeah, off the ground. a dive pass. Um, he was just a genius. And uh, so he of, of that older era, um, he's a player that um, I certainly loved. And I've got to throw in Campo. Yeah. Um, Campo, I think, probably the greatest entertainer I've seen. And, and he was so unpredictable, and the All Blacks were scared of him always. Mm. And... Uh, People talk about the mistakes he made. Well, I, I, I talk, they were few and far between as far as I was concerned. He was a handbag tackler. There's no doubt about that. Yes, but um, he managed to get his opponent down um, somehow. <laughs> Some, um, but uh, he sometimes. created so much enjoyment, I think, for rugby fans mm. and his teammates. Mm. What about that? Who's, who's a player that's made the biggest impact, do you think, in world rugby? I know you talk about entertainers and best play you've seen. Uh, for, for mine, it was Jonah when he was just coming to this yeah. scene. It was just huge. It changed the way the game was played. Have you yeah. seen anyone sort of of the like? Or Yeah, look, I, I think I'd have, have to be with you there with, with Jonah. Um, I just remember when they lost uh, to France at Twickenham um, in, in, that, in that particular semi-final after um, mm. Australia had, had Bernie Larkin had, had kicked that uh, drop goal in 99. And the last person to leave the field and he was still out there signing autographs an hour later was Jonah Lomu. Okay. And I mean, the All Blacks were devastated uh, to have lost that game. And, and the Wallabies were expecting to play them the following week, weren't mm, you? Absolutely. And uh, Jonah Lomu um, was out there still signing autographs. And I, I just found the times I got to, I interviewed he and Tana Umanga together before that game. And uh, just, we sat them down and uh, it was one of the great privileges um, to be able to sit with those two guys. and. Both gentlemen, um, and a, a rare insight into the game. So he he was just a game changer, as you say. And I just for Australia, I think probably Eelsey um, was a big game changer as as a, an athletic lock. Um, he became a great leader. Um, another game changer, I think, was Mark Eller. Um, you know, retired at 25. Mm. I've never seen hands like his. 
um, and wonderful vision. You know, he was working two or three phases ahead, but beautiful soft hands, um, just a freak uh, with his running lines and uh, not a great trainer, but um, yeah, <laughs> none of the Yellow Brothers were great trainers, were they? I remember um, Eddie Jones said, how's, how's Glenn Eller going? Because he was the assistant he was the attack coach, wasn't he, That's for right, England for when England. they came to Australia? Yeah. And he said, he's going well, but I think he swallowed Mark. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh, can you remember a moment uh, that left you speechless? Uh, I, I know it's tough to say it, and I suppose that would be the same question as what was your most exciting game? Oh, look, I, had a, I was doing um, the world commentary um, uh, at, the, in, at the last World Cup in 2015. I was calling Scotland and South Africa. And uh, I might have been calling it with Joel Stransky, actually, and Scotland made a break from their own line. And for the life of me, I couldn't pick up the bloody player, mm. the Scottish player. And he ran for 40, 50 metres, and I'm trying to get work out who the player was. And oh, and I don't think I got it out. It was really embarrassing, really embarrassing. It was just awful. And uh, in the end, I don't think I got the player right. Then it came back to me. That was, uh, those moments are horrendous, mm. <laughs> absolutely. I mean... It's, it's a bit like, uh, you know, going into the surf and suddenly you get swept out in a rip. You know, you don't panic. Mm. That's the, most people do panic. But there I probably panicked because I, I was annoyed that I couldn't name the player, whereas I should have stayed calm and, and talked generically um, as, an, as a good commentator would do. But I, I, I fluffed my lines there, so that's, that's horrible. I, I still have nightmares about that. That's all right. I don't, Scotland lost anyhow, so <laughs> no one's worried about them anyhow. Um, now... This Rugby World Cup, uh, what, what's what's been the biggest thing uh, that you've seen in a, like a trend-wise in this Rugby World Cup? I mean, we're in Japan. It, it is the Japanese people have been so good as well. I, I think it's been a wonderful um, tournament, probably close to the best we've had. Uh, there are logistical problems with the transport, I, I believe, just getting people out of the grounds. Uh, Say so last Sunday uh, in that Wales versus um, South Africa game uh, i some people took four hours to get back to their hotel you know just four hours and you so say you're not back till after midnight that's mm. it's, that's not good enough so with the olympics coming up i think that's that's a problem but everything else uh, the japanese have been so gracious they've been wonderful hosts the first world cup in asia and it, it really has been a spectacular cultural experience the players have loved it i mean um i think the the welsh and the all blacks the welsh team had fifteen thousand spectators at their first training session mm. uh, just just amazing and that's why i think um i think the wales team went to all four corners of the the ground after their loss uh, yesterday um, just to acknowledge the japanese people um, i think south africa losing to new zealand in that first game was a blessing in disguise because mm. they've got a had a very nice run through thank you very much and i think the standout really for me has been the uh, performance of england and, uh, and I think, you know, I take my hat off to Eddie Jones and his staff, uh, your former teammate at Eastwood, uh, mm. the great Scotty Wisemantle, the attack coach. A well. lot of Australians involved in the support staff for, for England, but I just love the meticulous preparation that, that sums up Eddie Jones. And can I say, Berkey, um, one of the, my favourite matches I ever called was Ramwick and the All Blacks in 1988 at Coogee Oval. Um, they were hanging from the rafters. You couldn't fit in. They were in the, you know, on top of the, the apartment blocks, up trees. And Eddie Jones, 70 kilograms, marked Sean Fitzpatrick, who was 105 kilograms, 35 kilogram difference. Mm. 
and he didn't give an inch. Mm. Uh, just amazing. He he was sledging right through the game. Of course. <laughs> I think Michael Checker played that game, and he was marking Buck Shelford. But um, the All Blacks, Buck Shelford said after that game, and it was a quite a tight game. Campo played. Um, Buck Shelford said the All Blacks will never ever expose themselves again to a club side like Ramwick at their home ground. Is that right? And that was the ultimate tribute, I think, um, because th they were given a big fright. And mm. Eddie Jones, to me, um, I knew what he was, pound for pound, he was a wonderful player. He played for New South Wales. Mm. Kernsey um, obviously got picked out of reserve grade um, for Australia. But um, yeah, so I followed Eddie all the way through and I just ad admire. He's, you know, he's, he's blowing things. Um, he, he sort of self-destructed, uh, you could say, with Australia and Queensland at different points. But mm. he's, He's then regenerated himself and revitalised himself and come back a new person and learnt from his mistakes. So the final on the weekend, who do you choose? Who's you going uh, to? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going for England. Um, I, think, I think they've got more strings to their bow than South Africa. Uh, the Springboks need to be a little more expansive, um, but they've, they've got a couple of injuries there. Um, young, is it young Colby? Yeah, yeah, Cheslin yeah. Colby, yeah. Uh, he, uh, I think he's a big loss for South Africa. He is, he's been an absolute star and he mm. creates so much for them. So they're scared, you know, to, to take too many risks, mm. South Africa, whereas England, I think, have three or four different um, game plans yeah. and they can adapt on the run. And that's what I love about England. When they played Australia and, and Australia had them under so much pressure, you could see how calm and composed they were mm. in defence. They weren't ruffled at all and they carried that attitude right through the game and they carried that attitude through against New Zealand too and the All Blacks couldn't get through, couldn't and, get through. I, and I think they can react the same way against South Africa. Gordy, it's been an absolute pleasure. I love sitting beside you in the commentary <laughs> box 20 yards. Thanks, enjoy Ricky. the call yeah, on the weekend. Yeah. and uh, We'll and enjoy it together. We will indeed. Yeah. Thanks and so may much. the best team win. Of course. Yeah. Did you say England? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Cheers, Gordy. Well, that wraps up Talking Rugby for 2019. I've enjoyed catching up with all the guests throughout this Rugby World Cup campaign and want to thank them for their time. Such good insights. I'd also like to thank you, the listeners, for spending part of your day with me. We hope to bring you more in 2020. Well, that's it. I'm out. Enjoy the final. And thanks for listening to Talking Rugby with me, Matt Burke. You've been listening to Talking Rugby with me, Matt Burke.